we got a special treat tonight in our fourth week of the BC series. Um, as we've talked about every week, we're, we're doing a deep dive into the Old Testament, look at, at some of the stories of the Old Testament uh, that, that tell us about who God is, how he works, um, and how it points us to Jesus. And so tonight, you guys have the privilege, I have the privilege of getting to listen to one of my favorite Bible teachers, uh, a mentor of mine. He's meant a lot in my life, not just as a man and a husband, but as a Christian. And so uh, let's welcome to the gathering stage, Terry Fakes, our executive thank pastor. Well, thank you, guys. I, uh, it's kind of a privilege for me to get to speak to you. Uh, most people say that uh, my uh, audience, my normal audience, are old people and their parents. So this is kind of a change. This is kind of nice. You know, when Andy asked me, he said, hey, would you mind coming to teach? We're doing a series called BC. Old Testament stories. I said, yeah, I mean, I love that. Despite uh, what you might hear, the Old Testament and New Testament are really important to each other. And I said, I'd love to, uh, love to do that. He said, well, that's great. He said, but, he said, you know, I know, I've known you and Laura, your wife, for a long time. You guys have been married for 30 years and that you somehow, you know, found this awesome woman to marry you. He said, so something that I think would be of interest to a lot of the people in this audience, he says, I just have seen you. Go, yeah, I've seen your wife, yeah. You must have had some mad dating skills, okay, to get this woman to marry you. And so I suspect everybody would like a few pro tips. And I thought, well, yeah, I mean, really, I think I could give you a few pro tips here. And so I have three tips for you, guaranteed to work, money back. Number one, guys, I just want to say this is, most of you guys, you're all handsome guys, you look great, I have no criticism, Be kind of all dress alike. And you know guys, they're not that into color coordination. If you want to stand out, you want to get a girl's attention, you got to combine colors in ways that get attention, like this guy. Okay, you have got to be willing to be a little bold and experimental with this, all right? But that's not all. The problem is everybody in your age group tends to dress kind of alike. Well, that's not bad. I mean, you guys look great. But if you really want to get a girl's attention, you've got to know what's coming next. What's the next style? You've got to get a little edgy, and you've got to get out ahead of the fashions <laughs> just a little bit. You can't stay where you are. And girls? I mean, I also have to say to you, I look at the girls today and I see a lot of really straight hair. And it's gorgeous. I mean, I, I, you guys look great, but everybody's got straight hair. And so the thing is, for you too, you need to get out ahead a little bit. You need to be bold and kind of go for some new looks, okay? You want to get noticed, you got to do better with colors, you got to get out ahead of fashion a little bit. Tip number two, guys, you have to build a reputation as somebody who's just a great date that you're fun to be with and that, you know, get the vibe going that, hey, girls that go out on dates with you have a great time. Listen, if you want to get a girl to marry you, she has to be thinking this. This guy is so fun. We do such fun dates together. We get married we're probably going somewhere awesome on our honeymoon, and it's just going to be dream world. This guy should be the kind of guy you want to emulate, somebody who knows how to treat a girl right 
and knows what a honeymoon looks like. Number three, this may sound simple, but I think most of you guys overlook this. It's gotten complicated in your world, and I realize that. Dating is harder for you because there are so many levels of commitment. You know, it used to be you were dating somebody or you weren't. Oh no, that's way too simple. If Facebook can have 55 different sexual identities, they probably got 100 different dating relationships. Well, here's the problem, guys. You're thinking, I'm waiting for these girls to kind of show some interest, and then I'll ask her out, but she has no way to, to know. Are you free? Are you not? You know, are you single, or are you kind of in a relationship? You need to be bold to let girls know you are available. So don't be afraid to be bold and get it out there. I'm here. I'm available. Okay? All right, I hope that helps you. That's all I've really got time for. But I think if you'll do those three things, you'll be married before you know it. In fact, you should probably go ahead and book the chapel now because this is going to work for you. Well, Andy and I talked about it, and I thought, I'm going to do the story of Job. And I don't know if you know the story of Job or not, but the story of Job, in my view, is one of the most misunderstood stories in the Old Testament. We th what we think the story of Job is about is not really the main point of what's going on. And the main point of what's going on has a lot to do with you and me. Job, uh, weird name I realize, in Hebrew his name is Eof, which is nice, but it comes across as just a really weird name in English to us. But Job lived really back in the very beginnings of biblical history. He lived somewhere between 2000 and 1500 B.C., he was not an Israelite because there weren't Israelites yet at that time, but he did believe in God. He believed in the one true God, Yahweh. And the scriptures say he was a very faithful man. In fact, that's kind of key to the story of Job. It opens with us seeing and knowing some things that Job doesn't know. And the first thing is God says Job was a righteous man. He was not perfect, but he made sacrifices to God, he honored God, his children, he, was, he had children, he had livestock, he was rich, he was hashtag blessed. I mean, he was president of the Chamber of Commerce, he played golf, you know, at the uh, Jerusalem Country Club, he had kids, he had livestock, he was rich, he had investments. Job was a blessed man, but he was also a man who followed God with all of his heart. So one day, seen in heaven, so I'm just going to tell you this story a little bit, and then I want to draw out two, two main ideas out of this story of Job. So one day in heaven, it said all the angels are coming before God, and Satan came before God. Now, time out. We've got to talk about Satan for a second. Who in the world is Satan? Is Satan a real being? Apparently so. And Jesus said Satan was a real being. The scripture says Satan is a real being. But what kind of being is Satan? He's an angel. He's an angel who rebelled. He's a created being, created by God. Angels seem to be more capable than we in the sense that they inhabit the physical world and they can also inhabit the spiritual world. And we don't really know what Satan's name was because you see the word Satan isn't a name, it's a title. In Hebrew, it's Hasatan, it's the Satan. And that word in Hebrew means the accuser. 
And so it says the accuser, that angel, that rebel angel, comes before God. And God says, what have you been up to? He said, I've been wandering to and fro on the earth, stirring up trouble. And he said, well, have you, by the way, seen my servant Job? And he said, ah, yeah, he's a righteous man. And, and Satan said, no, he's really not. He said, let me just tell you, Job serves you because you bless him. You gave him all this stuff. He's rich. He's prosperous. His life is going really well. He's got kids. He's got grandkids. Everything's going great for Job. Of course he's going to follow you. But I'll tell you what, Satan said, you take that stuff away from him, he will curse you to your face. And God said, I don't think so. He said, but I tell you what, you can take the stuff away from him, but don't touch him. And so, scene goes back to earth, and Job is uh, in his house one day, and his servants come rushing in, and they said, oh my goodness, all of your sheep and goats have been stolen by raiders, and they killed all your servants, and I'm the only one that came to tell you you've lost all of it. And while he's still speaking, another servant comes and says, all of your camels are gone. In fact, raiders took them away and killed most of your servants, and I'm the only one left alive to come save you. And then finally, servant comes in and he says, I'm sorry, but all of your children were together in the oldest brother's house, and a great wind came from the desert, and the house collapsed, and they're all dead. All at once, Job loses everything. So what does he do? Scripture, one of the most powerful passages in Job chapter 1, Job tore his robe, a sign of mourning, and he shaved his head, also a sign of mourning. He fell on his ground, on the ground, and he worshiped God. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this world. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And the scripture said, in all these things, Job did not sin. He didn't turn away from God. And so the scene goes back to heaven. And again, all the angels come before God, and the Satan, the accuser, comes too. And God said, have you seen my servant Job? You told me, and you claimed, you accused him. You said, if I didn't bless him, he would curse me, and yet he didn't. Satan said, skin for skin. He said, he may give all of his stuff up, but a man will give everything to save his life. You touch him, you take away his health, he will curse you to your face. The great accuser is making these accusations, and God says, you know what? I think you're wrong, but very well, but spare his life. And so Satan goes out, and Job is stricken I love this painting, by the way. Just the, I always put up paintings of the masters because I figure if you get bored with this lesson, at least you can learn something, right? But this is just a perfect picture of what happens to Job. It said, Satan struck him with boils on his skin and he became miserable. And Job sat on the dump heap. He's at the edge of the city by the dump, scraping himself with pottery. Job's bankrupt. Job doesn't have a nice house anymore. Job's lost his health. He's lost his respect. He's lost everything he has, and he thinks he's going to die. You see, Job has no idea what's going on, but he realizes, I'm going to die. And so the scene goes on from there. 
And it seems Job had three friends who lived in different cities, and they heard about his misfortune. And so they came together, and they said, we need to go see Job. We need to comfort him. And so they came to him in one of the saddest signs, uh, passages. It says they came to Job, and when they saw him, they couldn't even recognize him. And they sat down, and they didn't say a word for seven days. And they just sat with him. Well, needless to say, Job and his friends are trying to make sense out of this. What in the world is going on? Here's Job. He's a prosperous man. He's a righteous man. He's a Christ follower. He's a God-honoring God man. And look, he's lost everything for no reason whatsoever. How do you make sense of this? My contention is that this story, even though it's 3,800 years old, is just as relevant today as it was then. Job is the perfect Christian. I want you to think about that. If Job lived today, you know what we would call him? A really good Christian. He's a successful Christian, isn't he? He's got stuff. He's blessed. He's got cars. He's got kids. He's got a happy life. And he's giving to his local church, and he attends regularly, and he's a great Christ follower. You know what we call that? We would call that a successful Christian. But Job can't make sense of what's happening in his life. And so his friends decide they're going to help him. And here's what his friends say to him. They say, Job, you and I know what God is like. In other words, God has let this happen to you, or God has done it to you, but any way you look at it, your God is failing you here. He said, Job, first friend said, here's the problem. You and I know that this is the way God works. You do what God wants you to do, and God will bless you. He said, and Job, here's the problem. God is not blessing you. So logic would say, you must have sinned. You must not be doing what God wants. And so, Job, I hate to tell you this, but you deserve this. You better fess up. You better confess, and maybe God will turn things around. Well, the second friend, he comes along, and he says something similar. He said, I agree. He said, you do what God wants. You be faithful. God will bless you. God's not blessing you. Therefore, you must not have just sinned, but Job, man, I got to tell you, you must have sinned big. Third friend comes up and he says, these guys are exactly right, but I'll tell you what, Job, you probably aren't even getting as bad as you deserve. You are probably the world's biggest sinner. I mean, how could this happen to you if you hadn't been a great sinner? Well, these friends turn out not to be much help in coming to grips, and in chapter 12, one of the funniest lines in the Bible Job speaks after his friends speak, and Job says, you know what? You guys are so smart that when you die, all the wisdom in the world will be gone. And he turns to them, and he says this. He says, I'm not a fool either. He said, I know that's the way God works. I know that's what God's like. He says, but here's my problem. He says, you do what God wants. You be faithful. God will bless you. Obviously, God is punishing me. But here's the problem. I didn't do anything wrong. And you and I know that. Job didn't sin. He isn't being punished for sin. He doesn't know that, but you and I do. And he said, so you know what? If I didn't do anything wrong, there must be something wrong with God. How often does that happen to us? How many times have you heard friends say, listen, 
bad stuff is happening to somebody who doesn't deserve this bad stuff to happen. What kind of God would let that be the case? There must be something wrong with God. I can't believe in a God that would let this innocent child die. I can't believe in a God who would let a Syrian dictator put millions of people out of their homes. I can't believe in a God that would let that happen. In other words, these people don't deserve this. There must be something wrong with God. And therein lies Job's dilemma. Job knows that he didn't do anything wrong. His friends don't, but he does. And now he's faced with, God must have done something wrong. God must not be just. He must not be a good God. And frankly, this is what most people think this book is about, that the book of Job is trying to answer the question of why do bad things happen to good people? Well, first of all, there are no good people, but bottom line, why do bad things happen to people that don't deserve it? Why does one person get cured of cancer and another person dies of cancer? Why does the good Christian die? And why does the pagan and the secular person who doesn't believe in God at all seem to prosper? Why, Lord, does this happen? Now, I'm going to suggest to you, though, that's not what this book is about. In fact, Job is asking that question. Job is basically saying, okay, you need to explain to me, God. In chapter 13, he says this, if I could just go to court with God, I would make my case and I would make God answer me, how in the world is this fair? So Job is asking the question that we usually ask. God, what's up with this? You know, what are you doing? I mean, I don't deserve this. There must be something wrong with you. I need an answer, God. I'd like to know, what, why did you cause this to happen? That's what Job thinks this is about. But here's the problem. That's not what God thinks this is about. When you and I get in situations where we're wrestling with God, why is it not happening for me? Why is the job not coming? God, why is the hardship coming? God, why can't I get these relationships in order? Whatever it is in our life, we ask that same question. The problem is that's not God's question. That's not what God's doing here. It's not what God's doing in your life either. The problem for Job is this, and I want you to think about this a little bit. The quality of Job's experience of his life is determined by his concept of God. Now, I'm not telling you Job's not suffering. I'm simply telling you that Job is locked into a life issue. He cannot make sense of what is happening to him. Why is my life going this way? Am I doing this right? Have I missed the boat? What, what is happening? You and I think that too, particularly at your stage of life. Sometimes you think, am I in the right career? Am I on the right track? Is this going the right way? I mean, is, am I going to end up with a happy life and 2.3 children with high ACT scores? And Yeah, I mean, is this going to work out with the American dream? And you're wondering about those questions. And I would say the same is true for us as it is for Job. The quality of Job's experiencing his life, because Job can't make sense of this. Job is stuck, and Job is stuck because his view of God is a pretty small little box. What's his view of God? I be faithful to God and do the stuff he asks me to do. He blesses me. We have a deal. We do the same thing. Now, you don't think of it that way. You don't think, oh, I know, you don't earn your salvation. 
But we think if we go to church regularly and if we pray and if we are faithful in certain situations and if we have a little fish on the back of our car and at least wear two crosses at any given time, you know, in other words, if we act religious and if we are faithful to God and, you know, try to read our Bible regularly, then, you know, he, he kind of should be blessing us here. He should be making things work out. We really subtly buy into that image of God. And that's a box that Job has put God in. The problem with this is the God that will fit in Job's little box, the God that's you do the good stuff and I'll bless you, that God can't, can't make any sense of your life. There is nobody in the Old Testament with that view of God that ever really could get a grip on what is the point of life and what is God doing for me. Let me give you some examples from today, though. Because we still have this same kind of, of problem. We don't necessarily think of it that way, but we also put God in a box. Let me tell you about when I became a Christian. So I didn't grow up in church. I was raised a heathen. And about 18 years old, I decided to become a Christian. Became a Christian in a little kind of quasi-fundamentalist church. Great people. But my view of God was pretty much that I had accepted Christ so I needed to start living a certain way. In fact, they gave you a book when you were baptized in this little church, and it basically listed out the kind of way you're supposed to live. And I thought, if I do this, I'll be in pretty good shape. By the way, have any of you ever prayed to God? You don't have to raise your hands, but you can if you want. God, if you will get me out of this fix, I will never sin again. You guys ever prayed that? It's because you haven't been in a big enough fix yet, okay? So you get in this trouble and you pray, God, God, please, please, please get me out of this fix. Get me out of this fix. I promise I'll never go astray again. I'll never do anything. I prayed that prayer twice. Do you know how gutsy you have to be to pray that prayer the second time? Like, okay, God, I know I said the last time, but really, really, this time, you get me out of this fix, I'll never sin again. Well, that God is not enough to get me through life. Let's face it, it didn't work, did it? He didn't always get me out of the fixes, although more often than I deserved, and I didn't quit sinning, did I? I didn't become perfect overnight. My view of God was really tiny. It was a God who expected me to live a certain way. And if I didn't live a certain way, then, hey, deal's off, right? He doesn't have to help me. And so I had this little view of God, but it didn't work in my life. And it caused me to... Well, anybody Baptist in here? Backsliding? Anybody ever heard the term backsliding? Oh, serious backsliding. So I left the faith. You know, I was just puzzled. You know, it's like, hey, what is this whole God thing? You know, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's kind of random. You know, and what was the problem? I thought, got to be a problem with God. Same thing Job said, wasn't it? What was the problem? My experience of my life was completely determined by my concept of God. And I had a concept of God that was about that big. And consequently, that could never make sense of what was going on in my life. Let me tell you something that happens today to you and me, but to all of us, is we get an image of God sometimes that is stuck in about fourth grade. If you think about it, most people in church today that are, say, in your stage of life, we're pretty faithful. The fact that you're here says you may not be in this mold, and God bless you for that. But a lot of people learn about God 
in children's ministry. You go into middle school and high school ministry, and for some reason, you don't really learn much about God anymore, right? You learn about dating, you learn about purity, you learn about a lot of other stuff, but you don't learn much about God. And so your image of God is stuck at an elementary school level. I can't tell you how many adults that I know who are trying to make sense of their life and their faith with an image of God that came from fourth grade, right? One of the, one of the most clear strategic statements in this church comes from our nursery. So I remember when I first came here and I was talking to the director of the nursery and I said, I know this is going to sound like a silly question, but what's your spiritual goal for these little kids? I mean, nursery's like up to, what, three years old, something like that. So, and I was surprised when she said immediately, we know exactly what we're trying to teach you. God made you, Jesus loves you, and he wants to be your friend forever. I thought, I am impressed. Then I started teaching adult Sunday school, and I realized their picture of God was, God made you, Jesus loves you, and he wants to be your friend forever. And no wonder you're having a hard time coping with life. You got a picture of God that's about the same as a three-year-old. And the books that are on the market for Christians today don't help much. You read a lot of books about the Bible that want to tell you a picture of God that's still really small. Now, it makes you feel good, needs to. You won't sell books that don't make you feel good, right? Makes you feel good, but it's a really one-dimensional view of God. For example, a lot of books today that want to talk about how much God has got your back, how much God is all in it for you. God is going to do everything for you. Well, that's an interesting image of God. God is your father. God does love you. God wants to do good things for you. It's just kind of one-dimensional. You go through life thinking that about God, first time you hit a hard patch, you're going to have a hard time with that little God, aren't you? Like, God, why didn't you have my back? God, why weren't you looking out for me? Another one, this is a really popular one, is God is love. Not just God is love, God is just love. God loves you. That's all God is about. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you, and that's who he is. It's true that God loves you. It's true that God is love. It's also true that God is just. It's also true that God is holy. It's another one of those little one-dimensional views of God. And here's the problem. You put a God that say, God is love, just go love stuff, go love people. The problem with that is if you have ever gotten on your iPad or whatever and you look around the, the world and you see what's happening in this world and you go, I got a major problem with that little God. If he really does love us, why is this stuff happening? Why is all this going on in the world? I can't square those two things. You know why you can't square those two things? Just like Job, we go, must be something wrong with God. No, what's wrong is we've got a little God in a little box and we haven't let him be who he really is. The quality of our experience of life is directly determined by our concept of God. And when we take a little concept of God or a one-dimensional concept of God, whether it's Job's or ours, we are going to have problems with this. You cannot experience what God is doing in the world. Let me just make this more personal. You cannot really experience what God is doing in your life in any bigger way than your understanding of God allows. This, not the problem of why do bad things happen to people that don't seem to deserve it. That's an interesting question. This is the point of Job. Job can't make sense of what's going on in his life 
And it's not God's problem. It's because his understanding of God is tiny. And the same thing happens to us. And it happens to us because we don't take advantage of God's book, his revelation, when he told us about who he is. The Apostle Paul, right before he was going to die, he's headed to Rome. He knows he's probably going to die, and he does. And he stops by and he talks to some elders in the Ephesian church. And he says, I want you to say today that I am innocent of anybody's salvation because I have told you the whole counsel of God. And that's what I think we miss sometimes. We get pieces of God. We get pictures of God. We get designer God. We get what I call Build-A-Bear Jesus. Anybody have a Build-A-Bear when you were growing up where you get to put everything on it that you wanted and you got just what you wanted? Build-A-Bear Jesus is, let's build a Jesus that I like. The problem is that Jesus is too small to make any sense of your life. And so if you're having difficulty with that, if you're struggling with my faith, I'm struggling with my faith, if you have doubts, that's legitimate. But a lot of times our doubts come about not because there's something wrong with God, not because there's something wrong with what the Bible says, it's because our understanding of God, we have trimmed him down so small that that God can't make sense of this. That God can't make sense of evil. That God can't make sense of LGBTQ issues. That God can't make sense of corruption in the world. That God can't make sense of oppression in the world. That's not a God problem. That's because we can't explain any more than our conception of God will allow. So what do we do about that? We need to read his word and find out who he is. Well, let me take you back to Job. Because Job says, I'd like to ask God, what the heck is going on here? And believe it or not, God answers him. Some of the best chapters in the Bible. I'm going to read you just a couple little pieces out of Job chapter 38, 39, 40, and 41. That's right at the end of the book. In Job chapter 38, finally after all is said and done and after Job is saying, look, there's got to be something wrong with you because I didn't do anything wrong. And listen to how God answers him. Job thinks the question is, why are you doing something wrong? God doesn't think that's the question at all. Listen to his answer. Otherwise, this answer is going to make no sense to you. And so God speaks, and he answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, who are you to darken my counsel with words without knowledge? In other words, Job, you have no idea what you're talking about. I'll tell you what, Job, you dress for action like a man, and I'll question you, and you answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who determined the measurements of the universe? On what does it stand? He said, the morning stars sang and all of the angels shouted with joy. Where were you when that happened? Who shut in the sea with its doors when it burst forth? And who put the waves and stopped them here? He says, have you commanded the morning since time began that it might take hold of the skin of the earth and shake it out? He says, does the rain have a father? Or who has begotten the dew in the morning? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heavens? Can you bind the chains of the stars? Can you lead forth Orion in his belt in the sky at night? And then he turns and he says, And Job, you called me unjust. He says, 
dress for action like a man and answer me this. Will you put me in the wrong and condemn me so that you might be right? Well, that's what Job's doing. He says, I didn't do anything wrong. You broke the deal. And God says, you condemn me so that you could be in the right? You want to talk about the problem of evil? He says, arm yourself with majesty and dignity, Job. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out your anger on all the evil on the earth and look on everyone who is proud and tear him down. Look on everyone who is evil and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust, bind their faces in hell. Then I will acknowledge that you understand what's right and what's wrong. Well, let me stop there. It goes on for three chapters, and I would recommend them to you. Why? What's God answering Job? Job says, why are you doing something wrong? And God answers by saying, let me tell you who I am. Now, you listen to that and you think, oh, no, he's ticked off at Job. This is like one of the worst oh, no moments in history. But that's not the case. When you read the end of it, he's not unhappy with Job. In fact, he's kind of unhappy with Job's friends. And he says, you have not spoken about me what is true. In other words, he said, I'm not a God that if you serve me, I'll bless you. He said, you think that's who I am. That's not who I am. He said, in fact, if Job doesn't pray for you, I might just smite you guys. And Job's like, no, really, seriously, they're not good friends, but it's all right. What is God saying? He's saying, you ask about the problem of evil, I'm telling you, you need to understand who I am. When you read those chapters and you go, okay, that is the God that I serve. That's not a little God in a little box. That's a big God in a big box who can do anything, who knew you before you were born, who knows exactly where his Holy Spirit is taking you in life. He is the only one who is trustworthy to give your life to. That's a big God, and that will make sense of your life. That's the only God that can make sense of your life. Beware anybody that tries to sell you a little Jesus or a little God because it won't work. Second thing, that's the big story of Job. But in the end, the main question in Job is something you probably don't see coming. Do you remember how this story started? It started with an accusation, didn't it? Satan said, you know what? Job serves you because you bless him. All right, he's a good guy. You took his stuff away, he still serves you, but I tell you what, you strike him down, make him think he's going to die, he'll curse you to your face. And God said, I don't think so. You know what this is really about? Satan said, God only serves you. And by the way, Satan didn't just accuse Job. He's accusing you right now. He's saying, fill in the blank with your name. He's saying, they will only serve you if you take care of them. You let their life get too bad, you let too many bad things happen, and you watch. They'll turn away from you, and they'll go another direction. Well, with Job, God said, I don't think so. And you know what he says about you? Scripture says that Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for you. When Satan says, if you don't bless them, they'll leave you. And Jesus said, no, nope, they're mine. They have a bigger view of God. They trust you. They will not leave you. That's the dilemma that we have. That's what this book is really about. This book is essentially asking the question, 
what does it take for Job to serve you? Satan said, it's going to take you, God, taking care of him. God said, I don't think so. And you know what happened in the end? Job served God for nothing. Nothing. He doesn't have stuff, doesn't have his life, and he's sitting there, and he's looking at God, and he says, I have spoken about things I do not understand. You are a far bigger God than I ever thought. And he's still there. He's got nothing. The book ends with Job getting some stuff. Job's sitting there pledging his allegiance to God, thinking he's going to die any minute. It turns out Job will serve God for nothing. In the New Testament, John chapter 6, because I don't want you to think this is an old story about old people. This is about you and me. In John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching. He's got tens of thousands of people following him. And so he begins to teach. And at the end of the teaching, they say, oh, Lord, this is a hard teaching. Who can do this? And the scripture says many of them turned away and quit following him. And so Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, what about you? Are you leaving too? And Peter says, you have the words of life. We trust that you are the son of God. And so the question comes down for every one of us. Same question. And here's the question I really want you to think about. What will it take for you to serve God? Well, part of that is, what kind of God do you think you're serving? I won't serve a little God. There are gods out there that aren't worth serving. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who laid the foundations of the earth, the God of Job chapter 38, 39, and 40 is a God who's worth everything to serve. But the fundamental question of the book of Job is the same one that it started with, and it's a question for you. I think it's your custom to take 120 seconds and think, and this is what I'd leave you with. And if you get nothing else out of the book of Job, think about this. It's fundamentally putting the question to every one of us, and Jesus Christ is very personally putting that question to each one of us. What will it take for you to follow me?